0: The primary threat was RKG-3
1: grenades, like machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing.
0: Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed
1: penetrators.
0: Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates.
1: There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was
0: truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240. And the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Major Tyson Walsh, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Spear.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So we're going to talk about a story from 2013. Um, You know, our our regular listeners will know that we usually kind of talk about a little bit of background first. Uh, And I have to say, I think, uh, no, I don't think I'm quite certain that you are the first guest we've had on here that is a graduate of the Merchant Marine Academy. The Merchant Marine Academy. Talk about that. How did you end up in the in the Army after Whoa. the Merchant Marine Academy?
1: It's a good question. Ah, uh, I went to high school at the New Mexico Military Institute, um, which is in in Roswell, New Mexico, middle of nowhere. It's a wannabe West Point. It's you know West Point Junior, and did most of my high school there. Got in some trouble. Got suspended, um, but quickly recovered, got accepted into all the academies except Coast Guard, and so I had my choice, and I looked into the Merchant Marine Academy, and they said, listen, you graduate from here, you get this Coast Guard license. I didn't really understand what that meant because there's no water in New Mexico, (laughs) Uh, but you get a choice of active duty, National Guard Reserve, and then any service, so you want to go Air Force Reserve. Done. If you want to go active Army, done. So if, you're, if you change your mind up to the last, they do trimesters. Even in the last trimester, if you were going active duty Marine Corps and you had a ground contract and you suddenly decide, like I did, I want to go infantry in the Army because it's guaranteed, um, they say, sure,
0: you know, welcome aboard. So that's what happened. That's how you ended up in the Army from, from the Merchant Marine Academy.
1: And there was actually a West Point graduate, uh, Joel Buffardi. And his um, sergeant, uh, his NCO, um, Peter Swiderski, they convinced me that the army is a little bit of the same flavor as the Marine Corps. But if I did poorly at TBS in the Marine Corps, you know, if, even if you have one bad day, you go from a straight infantry contract, and they reclass you to ground intel, field artillery, logistics. You know, they get that choice. Whereas with the army, you branch what you branch mm-hmm. and then they post you you know based off of that how you do it I or Ranger School etc and so they guaranteed me Fort Carson infantry and I high-fived them on the way out the door and it's like a dream come true I couldn't believe
0: it so when did you get to Fort Carson
1: uh, Fort Carson so uh, after uh, f- uh, an attempt at Ranger School I uh, went to Fort Carson in May of 2009 okay that's when I was assigned
0: and as a platoon leader
1: platoon leader i was actually so i was branched infantry but uh they put us all wherever we could fit they wanted us in platoon slots immediately so i went straight to an armor platoon okay it's two a little over two years in the same platoon uh second platoon charlie company 166 armor first brigade fourth id it's fantastic what was
0: that what was that like to be an infantry guy and then suddenly say hey here's your tank platoon
1: uh, it was pretty awesome. Was it? So I'd heard about tanks, had seen a couple movies with tanks, and then when you see the guys in action and they, they pull that first round out and it comes nearly up to your waist, <laughs> and then they shoot that sucker, I mean, that's that's serious power. When all you've seen up to that point is maybe an AT4, maybe a 240 Bravo, seeing a 120-millimeter you know millimeter round go off is pretty epic and did you
0: deploy with that platoon so
1: i did so we they ran through an entire tank gunnery and we were tracking for iraq that the incident in haiti happened they needed recovery um personnel there so they sent the 82nd there and we took the 82nd's mission in afghanistan complete reversal of roles so we put away all the vehicles no humvees no no um, nothing no tanks nothing no bradley's went to Afghanistan completely light with tankers.
0: Wow. And we did a great job. That's good. My men were awesome. And then uh, you come back from that first deployment. Come back,
1: hit up EIB, and immediately go to career course um, with my peers and and some of the people in the class ahead of me. Uh, Get through career course, kind of take a knee there, and then um, try Ranger School again. Uh, No go again. (laughs) And then head to uh, the lovely Fort Polk. I had a choice between Fort Campbell and Fort Polk because I put Fort Polk second. They said he must really want Fort Polk. <laughs> so to, to Fort 10, I went.
0: So, and and I think, you know, some people will know this, some, some listeners maybe, but so you went to, you, I mean, you have a combat patch, 10th Mountain Division combat patch, 10th Mountain Division, you know, uh, uh, winter training up at Fort Drum, New York. Uh, but when they created the 4th Brigade uh, in, I think it was 2006-7, essentially, right. with, to support the surge uh, in Iraq, they put them at Fort Polk in the swamp. What was that like?
1: That was uh, everything you hear bad about Fort Polk, um, mainly about the weather and the insects, is pretty well substantiated. So it was, it was tough. It was good training. I mean, you're right there at JRTC you you get to work you know arms linked together with op four with Geronimo, with the 509th you see the training grounds that you're about to be tested on out there in jrtc during rotations and the soldiers they send you are very wide range so we get guys i had soldiers that were um, 18 x-ray dropouts that just didn't make it through rasp that didn't make it through ranger that didn't make it through any part of the q course they would wash out and they would show up at fort polk and then you had guys that like couldn't finish airborne school mm. and so you get this wide range of soldiers you never know what you're going to get unlike somewhere at fort bragg where there's a certain quality of soldier you are expecting sure
0: so uh we were talking before uh before we started recording my first deployment was uh with a unit that was in support of 410 and so my my combat patch is the 10th mountain division combat patch and there have been times when i've been wearing it some other place and somebody will you know roll down the window in their car as they drive by and yell climb to glory and I, you know i had to tell them well i was actually a unit in support of them and also it was this it was the fort polk part of the 10th mountain division so what about unit culture because you know, if you wear if you wear the same patch and you're all at at drum, there is this sort of, like I said, climb to glory culture about it. Did you feel a part of that, or were you more a part of the sort of Fort Polk culture?
1: It was interesting. So there was a lot of unit pride within our brigade, and even more so at sort the of battalion. brigade pride. Right, a lot okay. of brigade pride, a lot of battalion pride, and um, something really interesting happened. So I was at Fort Polk for four straight years. And my last few months there, they brought back this old um, idea from it must have been 20 years prior to repatch standalone brigades with kind of uh, sister National Guard units. So they switched out our patch with the Texas T. And I thought, you know, I had that same mindset. Well, we're, we're we're 10th Mountain, but we're like our own thing at Fort Polk were the Fort Polk brigade. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this won't really affect our unit culture. It really did. Really. I mean, there a lot. Of, not so much with the officers, or at least with the you know the, the captains and above. But even at the E7 level and the, and the lieutenant level and below, uh, they the guys were pissed. They didn't want to wear some National Guard patch. They wanted to wear their 10th Mountain patch. They had a lot of. Suddenly there was a lot of division pride.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, you're there at Fort Polk and the unit deploys to Afghanistan again in, when was this, 2013?
1: They, they did a deployment 11-12 in the Tangi, mostly in the Tangi Valley up in RC East. And that was rough. That's where you had the 31 Heroes event, yeah. um, all that. Uh, then they came back, reset really quick, and we shot out again. Uh, once again to RC East, spread out with this advising mission, this um, security forces advise and assist teams, and uh, that was in 2013, summer of
0: 2013. Okay, so uh, where specifically in Afghanistan
1: were you? So 230 was further east of us, there at Torcam Gate, and 24 we had FOB Tagab in Kapisa Province. Okay, and FOB Tagab is this beautiful, you know, former French FOB. Massive, massive fob. And we had this tiny little corner because most of it had been transitioned to the Afghans.
0: What's it? um, This is your second time in Afghanistan. Second time. Where were you the first time?
1: The first time I was in RC South in Kandahar in the Argandab River Valley.
0: Okay. So... um, RC South, you get you're at least in the kind of the northern part of Kenhar where you get some terrain features. Lots of Kenhar well, province. Helmand province is just completely flat. But right. now you're on in something that's a kind of a different order of magnitude, right? What was the terrain like in the area that you were in?
1: So in RC South, flat, and then you could see the mountains in the distance. Sure. And there was only one mountain, Kop was was near it, and they had their OP on top of it, and that was really it. Um, Fob Tagob, there was mountains behind us, mountains in front of us. And everywhere we advised, mountains there too. Naglu, um, Naglu High, Naglu Low. Everywhere there was very mountainous.
0: Okay, and, and it's there. an advisory mission, um, so you're going out often, but it's always with a partner unit. Presumably, um, what was your job at the time?
1: So I was the. Uh, not only was I the Battalion Two Four Infantry's Battalion AS Three, I was also one of the s team members okay and so i was advising um an s3 officer in the afghan national army
0: wow okay so you are i mean this is the spear so we're gonna hear a combat story uh when are we talking about
1: so uh december 1st 2013.
0: how long did you been in country
1: like seven months six seven months
0: long enough for everything to kind of become normal right feel com- uh, a sense of comfort with your job and 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 the environment and things
1: you'd think so uh so we had this unfortunate event happen this this kind of knee-jerk reaction i like to call it uh there was a report and it was substantiated uh because there was an event similar to this report so it was a second of its kind it was a uh, semi-truck vbid and so it was kind of a laughing matter, kind of comical when we heard it until we realized that there actually was one prior that had detonated and created like a moon crater outside of a cop. And so they said, well, now there's another one. And even though the pictures they used that they showed us this thing, it was a, they showed us a transportation vehicle full of landmines. And it's because they didn't have an actual picture of a, of a truck V bin. Sure. So we kind of like rolled our eyes. But the threat was pretty serious. And they said, any of these little tiny standalone advising units you need to get out you need to close what little piece of terrain you have down and move somewhere where there's better force protection uh because our our main force protection for you know three sides of our compound was the afghans and they were i mean they had tanks but they were a little um I don't know, little death blossomy, I guess you could say. Sure.
0: So the so three sides of the compound for it was for your team?
1: For two four infantry. And we had uh we had a couple of ODAs okay. inside of it.
0: Okay. So this is on Tagob. On Fob Tagob. Okay.
1: So they shut that down and we moved and it was it was like record breaking time. Um our uh our force protection alpha company two fours EXO and, and team um coordinated and shut down this cop uh, that's a little compound of, like record time so in a matter of a few days yeah. we got the heck out of there convoyed all of our junk all of our equipment all of our men and vehicles and women over to bagram to bath wow and they weren't ready for us
0: so that, which is impressive because you know they're they're um uh we we just ran an episode and we've done a couple about the battle of Keating, Right. Um, and if anybody has read Jake Tapper's book uh, Outpost where they have, you know, there was a series of these outposts in that, in that part of uh, Afghanistan that it was months that they were kind of talking about should we close it? Can we close it? The logistics of closing something like this. So the fact that you were able to kind of shut down uh, any facility like that uh, of that size in just a few days is, is, is almost unheard of.
1: Right. And the only thing that was holding us back was Bagram. They said where are we gonna put you know close to 200 people like where are we gonna put these guys right and that i mean we would have gone sooner i think if they would have had space and so they they told us we have they showed us a map of um it it turned out to be camp warrior which is Mm -hmm. supposed to be the temporary not permanent facility of bagram it's like the temporary area yep so you go in there, you hang out for a few days, and then you push out to where you're going to be operating out of. So that was going to be our home away from home. Sure. So already a bad feeling. But they showed us a map of Camp Warrior, and they said, listen, this section is two, four infantries. It will be ready for you. You're going to work here. You're going to sleep here. You know, this is your life support. And we showed up, and the, it was completely scrapped. We We went into the buildings, and suddenly there were, like, all these weirdos in there. There was contractors in there there was air force in there there were local afghans setting up shop in there so i mean we had to adjust pretty quickly there were, at first we were in these things called the circus tents these aircraft maintenance and yep. where there's just like a sea of bunk beds yeah. you know and then slowly we were able to clear out room in the in the chews i would never lived in a chew up to this point the container housing unit yeah and it was pretty nice i'm yeah. not gonna lie Uh, But we tried to make sure that we had a battle buddy everywhere we went. So my battle buddy was always Peter Anderson, you know, class of 2008 here at West Point. And, you know, we always we worked in the same building. We slept in the same building and we made space for our unit. And all the while we're flying out or driving out to advise these Afghan army dudes or the Afghan police, watch them on their operations. So did you
0: stay at Bagram the rest of the the rest of the deployment?
1: Yeah, we moved to Bagram. I want to say early to mid-october and then by the end of october you know that's only a couple weeks mm-hmm. i mean it felt like we were like into our steady state operations already hiccup you know we got past it the hurdles avoided got back into the to action
0: so you're now let's fast forward to december first you've been there and for a month month and a half kind of doing your job but doing it with a commute now, essentially, right?
1: Yeah. Well, so we had, and it's so frustrating. Um, when we went, if we go by air to any of these locations, it's fine. Uh, it's pretty quick fly. It's preferable. It's relatively secure. Sometimes you can't get the air transportation, and so you have to drive. And so we wouldn't drive with the Afghans. We weren't partnered like that. Mm-hmm. We were partnered in the sense that hey, we're going to show up and then do our mission with you. Yep. Uh, so. Whether it was at FOB to or whether it was out of Bagram, if we had to use the trucks and drive down there in our, in our Max Pros and um, our MRAPs, that, that was a serious movement. I, I think the longest drive was six hours once, and that was just straight U.S. forces with, uh, with interpreters, and we were on the road going to and from. And, and the move to Bagram, I think it cut down because there were so many routes that were black sure. that you couldn't go down that the Afghans either didn't clear or had never cleared. So we're not going to go down them either because mm-hmm. that's not our mission is to clear these routes for them. But we would, I think the move to Bagram shortened one leg of our trip and made the other one longer. So it, it, it the only benefit of moving to Bagram was this force protection idea. Okay. So we still did our mission. We were still rocking and rolling, advising regularly. Um, did a couple big missions with the Afghans, a couple of clearance missions with the police. So everything seemed to be steady state going into November. And that's when I kind of slipped into this, you know, we like to be into habits, we're creatures of habits. So I slipped into this mindset of, all right, if we're not actively advising, you know, in person with our Afghan counterparts, well, I'm a staff captain. So I've got staff captain stuff to do i have to do this this regional rasser report talking about all the war fighting functions how we're helping the afghans and where we assess them so that's that's a big movement and so i'm doing that coordinating with our staff to make sure we we're assessing them properly that that's pretty much all day sure and uh into the night that's when i started getting most of my work done um, because that's when my cycle lined up with the with the higher headquarters people. And then after we get off, uh, because my buddy Pete Anderson, uh, kind of transitioned to nights as well. That's when we would start working out and getting after our our own personal stuff. Sure. So kind of slipped into this nice steady state operations. Okay.
0: So then what happens on December 1st?
1: So yeah. So December 1st, right? So a week prior to December 1st, we're in one of our sync meetings. We have like sync meetings every two to three days. And during one of them, there was an initial report that there had been looters in our own motor pool. And our sister units on Bagram have similar grievances, talking about, you know, is it, is it the MPs? Is it these other units? Is it probably the Afghans that are working on Bagram? Because there's thousands of people on, on Bagram. And what they're doing is they're, they're cutting up the side of the fence make a little door, go in there, steal fuel cans, steal tools, whatever. Uh, I think one was so brazen as to steal a generator, like a small two-man wow. carry generator, like, you know, big ticket items. And so that that kind of bothered me. We'd never, I never encountered that as a platoon leader in RC South, you know, never encountered that during my merchant marine days, never encountered that um, at Tagab. Like, we didn't have any of these problems. And we had, we had Afghan contractors on Tagab, too, but never had looters that we know of and so uh get to december 1st um i uh asked pete pete anderson the night before on the 30th and i said all right you know what's happening tomorrow we're both training up for ranger school we had these like lofty ideas of going back to ranger school together and uh well probably the biggest um weed out event in ranger school is the rpft mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not that bad. It's usually push-ups that get people, maybe the people don't want to be there, they don't actually do the push-ups, but our two our focus because we're getting huge on this deployment, we're getting we're getting swole, is uh we got to we actually do a 5-mile run. Mhm. You got to do it in an 8-minute pace. You know, normally Fort Polk life that wasn't a problem. Afghan life starting to be a problem. So, sure. we're forcing each other to do this this stupid 5-mile run and uh but the first thing we do is we get our lift in. That's that's key. Yeah. And so that night on the 30th of November 2013 Pete says uh he's just had a rough day and into the night didn't sleep all well the night before, you know. Um I think we just come off an advising mission the day prior to that even. And so he said, you know, I'll catch you we'll we'll do we'll get a second lift in during lunch. You know, and I think, I don't think it was a lift that was a problem. I think it was the running. That's Mm -hmm. everyone doesn't like to run. Running kills gains. (laughs) Uh, So I say, you know what? I'm not going to argue with you on that. I understand where you're coming from. I'm still going to do it. And so, I mean, you're on Bagram. You're not even allowed to, I mean, you have a weapon, but you're not even allowed to be green status. You're like even greener than green status. You know, you have to have a magazine. It has to be like, away from your weapon, can't have a round chamber, like nothing like that. So a lot of folks will even go to the gym like we had been doing without even bringing a weapon because the chances of encountering someone where you need a weapon is far slimmer than forgetting you have a weapon and then leaving it in the chow hall, in the gym, in the latrine, and then showing up on army, you know, WTF moments. Sure. So we stopped even bringing our weapons to the gym. We would just go slick. You know, uh, the one thing that we had to have was our reflective belt and our eye pro. Safety first, Sergeant Major McAllister, <laughs> uh, all American badass. Um, like if he saw us without eye pro, I mean, he he didn't care what your rank was. He would he would like crush you. Yeah, yeah, They're, like legitimately afraid of him. So go to the gym. Got my eye pro on. Don't even bother taking it off because it's clear eye pro anyway. Don't even don't even notice it anymore at this point. And get a good lift in and then start my RPFT. And by that point, I think it's like 3.30 in the morning. So pretty pretty early in the morning. Um, and what was kind of weird about that night, and it's just like a coincidence of all, the, all these things happening, is before I even went to, to the gym tent, is I ran into our other advising team, the police advising team, um, which was uh, led by Captain Adam Napier. He was our Delta company commander and saw him in the shower bathroom tent. And he's like, yeah, we're leaving in a mission in like at 05, 04, 30. Oh, no, no, not 05, uh, like 02. It was really early, like really late at night, really early in the morning, however sure. you want to look at it. We're leaving at this ungodly hour so we can drive at night, avoid any traffic, have a nice smooth ride up to um, up to their advising site. And uh, you know, I high-five him, tell him good luck, and, they, and they're driving. They can't fly, because they just didn't, they didn't get the request in soon enough or whatever. it wasn't available. And uh, so while I'm, while I'm lifting, I'm not thinking about his mission, I'm not worried about his mission. But when I'm running, I start my five-mile run, I get this, this weird feeling, and I, I'm thinking about him leaving the motor pool. And the briefing that we had talking about the looters. And I'm trying to do this this correlation between these two events happening where, you know, unit leaves the motor pool, then they get looted. Why? Well, probably because when you leave the motor pool, you're worried about getting on the trucks and getting in the right order and then actually leaving and not, not running over the gate, not running over any of the light poles, big stupid vehicles on these little tiny roads, and then like maneuvering your way out of uh, Camp Warrior. And I've seen it twice up to this point where the gate is unlocked one time left wide open. So now you're just asking for someone to come in there and Mm
0: -hmm.
1: steal everything that's not nailed down. And
0: just to be clear, this is the gate from, from the motor pool out onto the rest of the fob
1: right right so yeah so we have our own little our own little tiny motor pool that's really far away from where we work and live it's still within Camp Warrior but it's there's like a separate parking lot of these fenced in motor pools that are all kind of clustered together
0: okay and so if that gate is open that means that besides you know several thousand Americans from different services contractors you have other coalition partners uh, and uh lot of local nationals as well afghans all of whom now have access to that motor pool
1: right so what's to stop them from walking in there sure it's very poorly lit there's a couple street lamps most of them are burnt out because again this this is a very temp was supposed to be a very temporary thing and then they were supposed to shut down camp warrior and bagram um it's not nice like the french fob that's going to be there forever so i get it in my mind that you know what I'm going to check this out. I'm going to go check out to see if they actually locked the gate and see if anything's going on over there. Uh, so normally what I would do is I'd run around the gym area, and it's about a third of a mile, so you can imagine 15 laps of that isn't you know, the best. Um, but going out to our motor pool in a round, it's about a mile and a quarter. So if I mix these two things together, and I'm just trying to do my... my my math department, math over here. Um, I can come out to about five miles and knock out, you know, looking at the motor pool and feel better about myself. Sure. So I do that. Um, I start out, I do, I do my normal laps around the gym area and then, you know, get onto this gravel path and I'm heading out towards where our motor pool is and I get out there and uh, sure enough, I see... That not only is the gate closed, I can tell it's closed, but there's someone standing in front of it. And he's wearing traditional kind of like the contractor garb. He's got like the loose baggy pants. He's got the shirt that comes, you know, past his knees. Um, not really wearing any headgear that I could tell.
0: When you say contractor, local. Local, local Afghan, Afghan national contractor.
1: Yeah, local Afghan national. Okay. Um, military age male. I can't really make anything out, still pretty far away, but the sound of my feet crunching on the dirt and the gravel alerts him to that someone's approaching and that it's, now it's like probably close to four o'clock in the morning, somewhere between three and four in the morning. And he was facing the gate and that noise startles him. And so he turns around and mind you, there's like nothing around here. This This is like a thoroughfare, to go from one part of fob warrior to another. There's no reason to be hanging around here. Mm-hmm. Nobody works here except for like mechanics.
0: And it's also four o'clock in the morning. So.
1: Really early in the morning. Sure. Or late at night, whatever your flavor is. And so I get up close to him and I I, do this thing that I kind of learned in this hokey school I took uh, part in is this, the Marines used to call it the hunter killer program. The army stole their idea and we call it um, ASAT, advanced situational awareness training. Sure it's when you're taking the training it's very uh hokey and, and like the instructors are really into it and completely bought into this heuristic thing and I never thought I would be appreciative of that school and and be thankful that I took it uh because the hackles I got hackles on my neck and all mm-hmm. up and down my arms everything about the situation looked wrong felt wrong smelt wrong everything and that was enough of an indicator for me to do something about it. So I kind of slowed down just enough to try and get a good look at this guy. Everything was nondescript. He was probably in his late 20s, maybe early 30s, Afghan years, um, might've have, might have aged him a little bit more. So maybe in his early 20s then. Sure. Um, maybe even younger than that. And then as I'm, as I'm running past him and I look down I notice he's wearing tennis shoes. Uh, never seen the local contractors wearing tennis shoes. So wearing tennis shoes and then he's staring at the ground. Doesn't even look at me. Doesn't even glance at me. He's just looking at the ground like this, just staring at nothing. And I kind of sail on past him and then come to the end of our front of our fence of our motor pool turn to the right, and I keep running. And at this point, my pace is completely trashed. I have no hopes of passing the, the five-miler at the uh, required 40 minutes. And so my mind isn't even worried about that. I'm thinking about this, this guy. And I give myself about a 30-second count, and I'm counting to 30, and what's going through my mind is, what can I do? And so the, I think of, really, I think of three things, and I roll, I roll two of them out almost immediately. The first one I thought about was, I should probably tell the MPs. Well, there are no MPs here. They're all up in this place on, on Bagram called Disney. Mm-hmm. That's where they live, that's where their office is, that's where all the important people are. That's, you know, that's the permanent part
0: of Bagram. The good side of the tracks on right. Bagram. They, don't, they
1: only come to Camp Warrior to give out speeding tickets yeah. during the day. Yeah. They don't They don't come there to patrol at night, clearly. Uh, so that's ruled out if i if I tried to even run that far, um, I would kill all my gains and then I would uh, it would probably take forty minutes, honestly, yeah. to get up there and by then convince them that they have to come back with me, and by then this dude is long gone. So what are the other options? The other option is to go raise the alarm, find the nearest building, bang on it, get some help, raise the alarm someone calls a number I, I don't have a smartphone that has international at this point even though it's 2013. i wasn't with the program yet but you know like call the number to get the sirens going and my uh, i mean that might have been the best choice at given what came next um but i didn't do it because of uh, fear of embarrassment like if this was a looter yeah. and you're raising the alarm that wakes up the entire bagram airfield base i mean you would never live that day. Yeah,
0: you're going to be that guy every time you walk into a room. Right. Yep.
1: So, nope, not that. So, one dude, I can handle this. So, I'm going to turn back around. I'm going to, like, run past him again and then turn back around, run past him again. So, what I'm thinking about doing is yo-yoing around him until he either gets the picture that I'm focused on him and make it awkward and engage him Or stop and actually talk to him, maybe. You know, Mm -hmm. like human-to-human interaction. Could be. Sure. So uh, I I turn back around. As as I'm running back, it's a chain-link fence, and you can kind of see through it. Mm -hmm. And so as I get towards the corner, I can see that he's turned around again, and he's got the lock and chain in hand. And so that changed my decision. I decided, you know, instead of spooking this guy, he's actually trying to get into our motor pool. And so I round the corner and I'm, I'm, I might be big at this point. I was about 240 pounds, uh, pushing 250. I was getting pretty huge (laughs) and, but I still had some sprinting power in me. And so I charge full on at this guy. And as he turns his head to look at me, which is pretty much as soon as I turn around the corner, I yell, "Wadarega" Astada start a show, which is stop in Pashtun Dari, you know, respectively. And um, how did you know that? Oh, I was as a platoon leader, you know, alone and unafraid. I had my own cop in RC South, so had uh, three interpreters and went on patrols two to, you know, one to two times a day. And so, I learned. so you picked up all the handy phrases. Oh, yeah. Including that one. I tried to learn as much as I could. Okay. I was very fascinated with, with learning a second language other than Spanish. Sure. So used the little bit that I remember from a couple of years prior to like tell someone to stop in no uncertain terms. Yep. And uh, he turns and runs. So for me and my, you know, infantry warrior mindset, I take that as an act of guilt. Yeah. So I don't decide to like murder this guy, I decide to stop him and I stop him with the only thing I have, which is my, you know, probably more than two times body weight. And I just crash into him and we go to the ground and, um, I'm on top. So it's like sandpaper for him. You know, they just slides and I'm kind of like using him like a sled at this point. So we go to the ground and, um, And I'm, at this point in my life, I'm pretty good at combatives. Um, And so I flip this guy around and and he's squirming too. So it's not like I had to manhandle him too bad, but he kind of shrimps around to where his head is up and he's trying to get away. And and then he's not yelling out or anything. He is, he's like a professional. Mm -hmm. He's silent, he is struggling. He, He puts one of his hands up against underneath my chin and moves my head to control my body. And everything about this felt odd. Like I was fighting a professional, like a soldier. Um, But he had his hand clenched around something. And what he had his hand clenched around, I thought was maybe, you know, maybe our keys to the motor pool, or maybe, I don't know, something. And then I had this this, uh, growing fear. And I mean, this is all happening within seconds. I thought, you know, what if there's a wire going down his wrist? Mm-hmm. What if he has a clacker? Because uh, from Sergeant Major McAllister's previous unit, I replaced them as a platoon leader. They had suicide bombers left and right. Some of them had clackers between their knees. Yeah. Some of them had them uh, hidden up their wrists, and they just had to, like, turn their wrist a certain way and, and kind of flex their arm. I mean, all kinds of weird stuff. And so I had this this paranoia kind of unfolding in reality in front of me. And uh, my first focus was, well, if he's going to control my head, I'm going to control his. So I put a hand on his face, holding him down. And with my other hand, my, my left hand, my non-dominant hand, I grab his his right hand and I peel back the fingers. And what comes out of there, I thought it was going to be something else. It was, uh, he, had a, he had three very professional grade, almost akin to our blasting caps. Oh, wow and it's just one shocking realization after another i'm suddenly very aware that i'm on top of him and i'm 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 turning my mind to my thighs and my chest that i'm like kind of bearing down on him with and there's bumps everywhere so obviously suicide vest so no no clacker so hidden clacker i don't know but he's got some sort of armor or vest, fishing vest, something on underneath, LBE, you name it. And I have no idea what's in there. But all around me, as I kind of pushed back off of him, because for, for a split moment, I thought I was going to get up off of him and jump back, and then he was going to explode. And I didn't do that because as I pushed back, I saw that there was even more stuff on the ground around him. It was like, a, it was like when I hit him, he was a clown car and everything just came out of him. All kinds of stuff. He had multiple cell phones. There was a, a couple spools of this um, twin flex wire, this really thin wire that they have uh, that we always found um, with like command wire IEDs. Um, just all manner of like i d making material. He had wiring tools that were slipping out of his pockets. Um, I saw the lock picks. He actually had a an actual set of lock picks, you know, so not your run-of-the-mill
0: looter. So you're seeing all this stuff. Are you still engaged with him? I
1: still have a hand on his face as I'm pushing back, kind of like looking around my thighs, trying to see if I can see anything else. And it's when I kind of see this array of of this buffet of IED-making materials that I decide, you know, the best thing to do at this point to prevent him from from clacking himself off if that's if that's in in the case of what's going to happen here Mm -hmm. well i'm just going to take away that choice and so my hand slips down from his face to his neck my hand lets go of his other hand which he then slaps to my neck to try and like pull me away and i put two thumbs over his adam's apple and push all the way until i can't push anymore and he's that's when he starts trying to call out i have no idea what he's calling out it's it wasn't to or Dari. It might have been someone's name. Um but I it felt like uh it felt like the crushing of a um one of those bendable straws. That's what it felt like crushing his his throat. And pretty sickening feeling, but it was a tactile, audible indicator that I had ended another human's life. Um effectively. And I held him there for a few seconds uh, long enough to where he you know he was gurgling um, and kind of I felt his hands kind of going slack and kind of falling off of me and that's when I heard crunching of footsteps and so apparently what he had been calling for was help because if I had chosen a different path to run down if I had, instead of running past him and turning right, if I had turned right immediately, that path down the as you're looking at the motor pool, the right side of the motor pool was completely unlit. It was dark. And I've had eye surgery once before. My night vision's not great natively. And so what was down there was a bodyguard. And this guy was a about my size and instead of your you know typical pashtu um, Afghan this was like a hazara I think he looked a little bit mongol maybe Russian and he was Pretty big. He was a pretty big dude. And um, I guess I got pretty lucky uh, he took a large pipe about three inch in diameter and It was lead with a. They found the actual weapon and um, they struck me across the head on my right temple and opened me up pretty good. Thankfully, I had iPro on. So it shattered uh, my ESS crossbows. Um, the lens broke in half and the arm of this thing had like a nice gouge taken out of it. So that kind of made the made it a glancing blow instead of a direct hit uh, when this guy took a baseball swing at my head. Um, kind of blacked out after that. <laughs> didn't didn't take that hit too well. And uh, came to it felt like seconds. Yeah, it could have been minutes, came to surveyed the area. They were gone. They're ghosted out. Didn't see any of their stuff that was on the ground, you know, no, lock, no uh, lock picks, no blasting caps, no cell
0: phones. So he took the other guy's body as well?
1: Yeah, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't know at the time. I didn't know what had happened. I knew that I had really se- you know, severely injured someone, and then his buddy clocked me. And when I came to, uh, I looked for them. That was my first instinct was we got to re-engage. I'm going to get this mofo, you know. I'm gonna get get back at him mm-hmm. didn't see him and then I noticed you know back then we had the gray PT shirts blood on the shirt blood on my legs blood all over my hands touch my head it's burning hot um, I don't know how long I've been there it's still dark so it's not daylight yet but the, the Sun is kind of cresting you know it's the, the BMNT so I said you know I gotta get help we gotta find these guys. We gotta do something about this. Cause I have no idea what they were doing. I can only imagine. And so beeline it for uh, where I think is the direction of um, the nearest uh, barracks building and it, uh, or, or at least uh, either the, the, the circus tents where people are living or the chews and the chews came first. I just kind of by muscle memory wound my way back. And the first, the first set of chews um, happened to be where I lived. So that's really lucky. I have no idea what my door code is. I still don't know. <laughs> so Archu is the third in this little row, and I am banging on it. And Pete is still sleeping. And, I hear, and we have multiple roommates, but Pete and this chaplain are the ones that answer the door. And his look turns from... Annoyance to complete horror when he sees me in this 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 messed up state state of disrepair and uh, as soon as he gets me in his arms and I tell him there's two they're still over there I, it's like the worst gottwa that I've ever given someone <laughs> <laughs> you know I at least gave him like enemy size, right? I told him there's two. There's I think I told him they're at the motor pool and they're attacking us. You know, not not the best instructions, but enough to get him moving. I don't even think he had I think he was like in his underwear. I don't even know if he had a shirt on. I don't even know if he had shoes on and he was gone. And um I was like, "Well, I'm just going to lay here." But the chaplain was there. Mm-hmm. And so this this chaplain has me. I have no adrenaline. Adrenaline's completely dumped. And as he's talking to me, this chaplain is like holding my head and talking about my, I guess in the, the light of, I don't know if it was getting lighter out or if there was a lamp or something, a street lamp uh, underneath the shoes. Uh, he's like talking about the color of my eyes. And then I have just this, the whole world starts to shake. And I had, you know, my first ever seizure wow. and completely seized. And um, I pass out again. I wake up again. And there is, it's daylight, I think. And there is everybody around me. I was like my battalion commander, uh, Paul Cunningham, Colonel Cunningham, Major Trevor Vocal, um, My S3, my XO uh, was an S3. Like all these people are around me. And they're like strapping me to a backboard, and putting me into an F.L.A. You know, to get to get medevaced. And then I have another seizure, and they they're like, "Oh my gosh, he's seizing!" And they they I guess they put me into the hum into the L.M.T. or the F.L.A. They put me in the back of the F.L.A. They don't secure me, and they don't close the door, and so the medic takes off, and guess what happens to me? Oh no fly out the back
0: With the backboard are you strapped down? To the? Backboard? I'm strapped
1: to the backboard oh. and at this point like I can't feel anything I don't even know what's I don't even know where I am and uh, I'm not even sure if I landed, you know face up or face down. I'm not sure. I just remember everyone's yelling um, People are, are just like just You know foaming at the mouth yelling at each other. There's like an alarm going off now. So someone raised the alarm I guess they get me back in the FLA and they shoot me over to the hospital. Uh, the last thing I remember is they got me on on like a, um, on like a roller cart. I'm still strapped down. And uh, I see a doctor. I guess there's other people around me, but I see the one doc and he's like trying to put something over my face. And I don't know why, I probably should have let him do what he had to do, but I grabbed his arm and I squeezed it so hard that I thought I broke it. Wow. And then I had another seizure, and then I was passed out, I think for, I think I went into a coma for two days, one day or two days, I have no idea. And after that, everything, up until I get to stool, it's from people, my, my battalion surgeon, major vocal, Colonel Cunningham, it's people telling me what had happened after
0: that. So you were evacuated after that?
1: Right, I went to Longstuhl, when I came to in tool, um well, from what I remember in Landstuhl, even though I, I think I was awake in the hospital at Bagram, my memories are really weird. They had me on like Kepra, I guess, which is like an anti-seizure drug, which messes you up pretty bad. Uh, but I, I don't remember the flight to Launchtool. I just remember getting to Launchtool, The doctors, there's three different doctors, didn't know why I was there. It was comp- like there was no information, nothing. They didn't even know where I like, like, what country I came from. They they thought maybe I was a local at JMRC that got hurt. Maybe I was in Africa. Maybe I was in Iraq. Like, they don't know where I came from. Okay. No information. Um, and I just remember, uh, like going through recovery there, and then finally piecing it together. And so the initial report was that I had been attacked by looters. Some one report was that I got attacked by a fellow soldier. One report was that I got mugged by by some local afghans you know they were trying to rule everything out um
0: did they ever figure out what did happen
1: so it took a year it took a year uh cid did their investigation um and thanks to trevor vocal to current now now lieutenant colonel trevor vocal um the cia got involved and so what had happened is big dude Big uh, Hazara guy took his boss's body, um, who who died right there, and fled. Gathered up everything he could, which was pretty good except for the weapon he hit me with. Gathered up all those pieces, took the body, and ran. And ran to what he thought was an abandoned section of either Camp Warrior or even some other part of Bagram. Turns out it wasn't abandoned. So when the alarms went off and and uh, our security company, Apache Company 2-4, was like, they got into trucks and, and on foot and they were like prowling for anyone suspicious looking. You know, they were getting after it. Um, that alerted the people in this compound to come out and check out what was going on. Turns out it was the CIA compound. Wow. And so they they the story that I've been told is that Uh, One of the agents or one of the workers there in the field office steps out, looks around, looks over to the dumpster and sees Hazara squatting there, acting totally suspicious. And then next to him, it's like a weekend at Bernie's, dead guy, like slumped up. And so he kindly pulls them in and figures out what the heck happened. And then there was this very distinct divide in information flow so cia's got their dudes we had nothing so the so the cid investigation they 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 had nothing to go on they just had injured tyson walsh you know i've got my what i remember of my story um but
0: otherwise they never found these guys so they're just phantoms
1: right yeah uh, so the CIA publishes a couple things. Um, they send to, to the 10th Mountain, uh, G2, and, and to the division commander, General Townsend, um, and then to our brigade command and staff uh, down at Fort Polk. They send them a couple of documents, one of them being a, uh, basically an exum of everything that happened, what they did. So they said on December 1st, you know, Captain Tyson Walsh engaged and killed this guy that turns out to be a sub-commander for the Haqqani Taliban network. It turns out um, it was a weird translation. They said it was the son of Sirajuddin. Judy, and it turns out it's like his one of his random nephews or something. Okay. They get these relationships mixed up.
0: But a prominent figure.
1: Prominent figure. Big, big deal. And his bodyguard. Um, they didn't name him. So what happened is they, they took these two body and not, you know, living and not living guy into custody and plugged the Hazara for information. And because his boss got schwacked, uh, and this guy, the bodyguard, is not only supposed to keep his boss alive, but, oh, is also not a poshtun, mm-hmm. He's Hazara, which is a subclass. If he goes back out on the street, he's dead.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, he has shamed his people. He has shamed his his organization. So he says, "Whatever you do, don't let me go." And he tells them where six of the other commanders are that staged this attack, uh, that 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 were part of this this ongoing operation. Um, they they get six jackpots, all good information, in exchange for this guy's you know safety and life. Wow. And what had happened was, is the, the operation that they uncovered was about, it was just shy of two years in length. So at, at, the, at December 1st, 2013, that had roughly the 18 month mark. And what they were doing is smuggling onto Bagram IEDs, planting them in motor pools, anywhere in ECPs. I think they said they found one under a latrine, anywhere that they could. They were burying IEDs. At this point, they said there was close to three dozen um, in various states of readiness. Some of them, there was just a jug there. Um, and this is all from the Hazara guys, you know, his recollection of mm-hmm. where everything was. Some of them were completely set up, remote and the cell phone, already fully charged and ready to go with a battery connected to it to keep it a, keep it fully charged, ready to receive a signal. And their plan was on some significant day christmas that year i don't know easter eid ramadan whatever some on some day in the future when when hqn could could decide they were going to detonate all these things cause mass chaos because they know these IDs probably wouldn't cause casualties but i think they were fixated on vehicles they wanted to disable the vehicles because those are you know big money sure. items and then they had a couple hundred fighters, mostly suicide bombers that they were just going to flood Bagram with and inflict mass casualties. Wow. And this is completely dismantled by one idiot running alone uh, against all better judgment, you know, should have had a battle buddy, should have had a weapon. I don't know. still, you know, mucked up their plan. It's an incredible story.
0: Um, it's lucky, really lucky. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, another way of looking at it is that there are probably a lot of people, you know, walking around now who are lucky that you happen to, you know, be trying to lower your runtime. So for the RPFT, uh, that night at, you know, ODARC 30, um, the what did you call the Marine Corps program, Hunter Killer? Yeah, the Hunter and what Killer. It was, and the Army calls it the advanced, situa- yeah.
1: advanced Situational Awareness Training. Um,
0: uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because that seems to be a theme that uh, we get in some of the episodes as people talk about training that kind of, you know, you sit through and you might even roll your eyes or something. Um, but just by being present, you're sort of like... Well, they took us out. I mean, in. they
1: took us out into the field. And so they'd have these mock training houses and some of them would be completely sterile nothing wrong with them and then you'd go into a house and it would smell like cat piss ammonia you're like that's really weird and then they would stop the scenario and these like wannabe 18 series guys would come out these like i don't even know if maybe they're awg or something these these wannabe cool guys would come out (laughs) and they'd say all right you know all right guys pause scenario what do you think is going on here you went through three houses you you said this one smells weird. What do you think? Like I don't know, it just smells weird. It smells like chemicals, like like ammonia. Well, what is ammonia used for? Oh, ammonium nitrate aluminum. You know, they, there's an IED facility here, like a serious one. It smells like cat piss.
0: Do you think if you hadn't gone through that training, that night it might have gone differently? I think so. Well. Could you ever have imagined that this is you know, you were an infantry officer, you'd, you trained for combat. Could you have ever, and you, but you had also done combatives, but something about when you're doing combatives, it sort of has more, uh, it's, it's not just training you to fight hand to hand combat. It's, it's training a mentality. It's, um, it's physical training. It's a lot of other things. Did, did you ever, exp- could you ever have imagined that this was something that you would experience? Uh,
1: no, <laughs> not even a little bit. I told my wife. So my, my PL tour was, was very kinetic um, very stressful we were in we'll get all one six six armor we were in combo blackout for i mean weeks weeks at a time almost the entire deployment and it was it was so incredibly stressful because for our families for casualties for casualties yes yeah,
0: for listeners that aren't that aren't aware you know when there's when there are casualties you go on combo blackout just so that the the that families can be notified in the through proper channels
1: yeah, right.
0: And so if you have a lot of casualties, that means you're in combo blackout for an extended period of time.
1: Yeah, it was it was desperate. That deployment felt back home like it was a desperate um situation, very dire. And so when I came home and, you know, we we moved to Fort Polk and chose that location because Tenth Mountain was on the patch chart. We were supposed to be the last battle space owners in Afghanistan, not this advising mission. When it turned into the advising mission, I told my wife Jennifer that you know, I'm a staff officer, I'm an advisor. This is like the most cush job Mm -hmm. ever, like completely low threat. Like I could just get rid of my life insurance right now, and save us a couple bucks every month. (laughs) You know, these are the conversations I had with her. And then come to find out that I was eight hours away from having a uniformed person and a chaplain knocking at my door at Fort Polk to tell my wife that, I'm in a coma and might not—that I'm critically injured in combat. Eight hours, uh-huh. and that—that that just, you know, it's just shows you the volatility of war. You know, wow. you just don't know what's going to happen.
0: Well, Tyson, thank you very much for, uh, for sitting down and telling us, like I said, a, a, a really unique story. Um, one of the things that, that I've really appreciated in, in recording these is is that there's no two combat experiences that are alike. Uh, this is certainly one that, that, that highlights the extent to which that's true because um, this is very unique. So uh, thank you very much for sharing the story with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for having me.